Amen. Well, it's uh, amazing and kind of hard to believe it's been six years. And, you know, my wife was up here earlier and she said it, not me, but I've given birth and I know exactly, <laughs> I know exactly what it's like. So, uh, um, and so, hey, listen, I'm really excited. It's kind of emotional a little bit just to think of all that God has done these last six years. And it's a privilege to do what I get to do. And so thank you guys for, uh, yeah, just trusting Jesus with us and making a difference with the people that God has brought uh, through our doors these last six years. Uh, I want to talk a couple things real quickly as I begin. Again, as you leave today, you'll get these little prayer and fasting cards. We do this once a quarter here at New City Church, where we go before the Lord and we ask Him to move. And I always like to remind you that fasting without prayer is called a diet, and diets are all well and good, but we want to seek the Lord together. And so on one side of the card, you get a couple of different ways you can fast this week to make it super simple for you. And on the other side of the card, it's just five different things that you can pray for. Maybe take a few minutes when you would be eating or during your day, take a walk, whatever it is, and to ask God to move in these specific ways. Uh, one of them I just want to point out is for the salvation of somebody in your life, and perhaps even to invite them to Easter next Sunday. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity as we're going to talk about how Jesus conquered death and gives hope to all of us. And so next week will be a great way to uh, invite them. But even if not, it's still just to be intentional about praying for somebody in this area who does not yet know the grace and mercy of Jesus. And the other thing I want to point out really quickly is we are, this is called Holy Week, uh, leading up to Easter. And on this Thursday, we're going to be having a night of worship and prayer right here in the auditorium at seven o'clock, where we're going to go before the Lord and pray or to worship. And we're going to pray and we're just going to ask God to move. And so here's my encouragement. If you have anything in your life that you need to be prayed for, whether it's physical, emotional, financial, whatever it might be, a broken relationship, uh, we want to pray for you. Uh, and we're not like guaranteeing that something amazing is going to happen, but we also don't know. And in James, it says, sometimes we have not because we have not asked. And so we're just going to ask God to move and to heal and to see what he might do. And so I would encourage you, if you're free this Thursday at 7 o'clock, to come join us. Uh, join us for prayer as we can encourage one another and see what God might do. Now, uh, as I begin, we're continuing our story in the book of Genesis this morning. Uh, it's, what's interesting is as you get older, there are things that, that, that happen as a kid that you didn't realize really like their full significance or what they actually meant until you get older. So all of us know what it's like, for example, to listen to songs now that were out when we were kids and be like, oh my goodness. Um, because we're at church, I'm not going to give any examples. But there's like, that means what? Like when you, you had no idea, right? Or maybe you watched a show, like a, a, a movie for kids, and then you rewatched it with your own kids, and you see these jokes or these innuendos that completely went over your head when you were a kid. Or toys that you played with. So I, for example, I remember as a kid, I had this cowboy and Indian playset, And, you know, they're like fighting each other, shooting each other, whatever. And I'm like, I not really know much about it. And then I get older, and I was like, oh, like I'm playing murder. Like, I'm playing genocide. Like, that's what it was. Like, cowboys and Indians. It's like, why is this a toy, right? Or, or maybe, um, like, dressing up as a pirate. Like, pirates, like, are, were bad. Like, kill, murder, st steal. Like, and it's like, hey, that's so cute. You're a pirate outfit. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Or, like, um, you know, what, what, what I've learned is, like, if something happened that was really bad, as long as, it's, as long as a certain amount of time has passed, then it's okay to, like, maybe joke about it. Like if it's in the recent, maybe the last hundred years, we don't want to joke about it. But if it's like really long time ago, it's not that big of a deal. So for example, um, Genghis Khan, he was a ruler in China, terrible person. Uh, in fact, there's like statistics about how many people alive today can actually trace their roots back to being related to him. But because it was so, so long ago, we now eat chicken named after the man. 
Like, it's just like, it was so bad. But then when you learn the history, like, how is this a thing that we're actually doing? Like, you don't actually quite understand it. And today, uh, as we're celebrating six years of God's faithfulness at New City Church, nothing quite says happy birthday like death and destruction. Um, we are reading the story of the flood. Now, this is the Genesis account of the flood. This is a story that you might have heard, might have played with, might have uh, saw pictures of or had animals of as a kid. Or maybe you're familiar with it, but it's easy for us to forget what the story is actually about and what actually happened. And so we're looking at one of the most iconic stories of the Bible here this morning. And we're going to see what is actually going on in the story. And so if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 6? Now, uh, there's a lot of Bible today, and so we're going to kind of move through this a little bit quickly and answer some of the big questions that a few people that you might have about this text. And so just get along with the ride. But it, uh, Genesis chapter 6, if you have a phone or if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those black ones out. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home with you. It is our gift to you. We're picking up the story this morning. In Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 18. So uh, last week we saw Noah kind of come onto the scene. Uh, the genealogies leading to Noah. The hope is that this, is this going to be the snake crushing seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3? The one that's going to fulfill us and make things right that are broken in the world. Of course, we know it's not going to be Noah. We know it's going to be Jesus. But in the story, we're going to see, man, is this the one that's going to fix everything? Last week we saw the wickedness and evil. We talked about how God judged sin and how that's actually a good thing because if God didn't judge sin, it would mean he would not care. So the fact that he judges sin means he cares about us and what we are experiencing. And now he's going to bring judgment on the wickedness and evil that was all over the earth that we talked about last week. And so we're going to pick up the story in verse 18. It says this, God is speaking to Noah, but he says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your son's wives. You are also to bring into the ark all of the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Verse 22, of everything from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. Verse 22, and Noah did this, and he and did everything that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to make, take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep the offspring alive throughout the earth. So uh, what's happening here is that Noah, we talked about this last week too, he's getting ready, he's building the ark, and God is going to bring the animals to him onto the ark. Now, again, we mentioned this a couple times throughout the series. It is worth noting uh, that Genesis is not the only ancient uh, story that talks about people living a really long time and then there being a massive flood. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean it happens. Of course, we believe the Genesis account is God telling us what happened, but it's just worth noting that there are multiple accounts of this. Uh, in fact, uh, there's the Atrahasis epic, which talks about how they wild animals were caught and brought on board to be rescued, or the Gilgamesh epic that it says, in addition, in addition to the animals, silver and gold and seeds were taken onto the ark. Again, I want to be clear, those are not scripture. We're not saying that's what actually happened in those stories, but people seem to think that something happened where animals came to the ark. Now, um, it, it doesn't tell us how the animals got there. There's a lot of questions for it, um, but, but the animals, some of these animals actually arrive somehow. They get onto the ark. Now, for no it talks about pairs, you might have been a little bit confused as we read, uh, pairs of unclean animals, 
uh, one pair each, and then seven pairs of clean animals. Now, what clean and unclean animals are are not really shown until later in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus when it talks about the sacrificial system and what foods or what meat was acceptable for the Israelites to eat and to not eat. And these animals uh, that the Israelites are allowed to eat and to sacrifice, well, you need more of them on the ark because, you know, I guess they're not going to live as long. Some of them might not be. Now, here's the thing. How no one knows the difference between clean and unclean animals, the text does not tell us. So it doesn't tell us how he knows the difference or how God eventually decided to choose which animals were clean and unclean. But for whatever reason, somehow he does. And of course, the question for us also is how the animals actually got there. The text does not tell us. There's a lot of deals it does not tell us, but it does tell us that God brought and or directed them to the ark. Now, of course, in terms of number animals or who else was on the ark, we'll talk about this in a few minutes. It also depends on how big you think the flood was. If it was global, then you would need animals of every kind. If it was smaller, depending on where it might have reached, you only need animals that lived in those certain regions. We'll get to that in a second. But God brings them. And then it says this in chapter 7, verse 4, if we keep reading. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. And Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and covered the earth. We talked about the ages of people a few weeks ago, so you can listen to the sermons or check the podcast if you're interested about that. Uh, verse 7, so Noah... His sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, uh, sons' wives entered the ark because of the floodwaters. For the animals that are clean, and from the animals that are not clean, and from the birds and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, just as God had commanded them. So he somehow again commands the animals, tells them where to go. Verse 10, seven days later, the floodwaters came on the earth. Now, one thing I want to pick up, uh, point out here quickly is that it can be really inspiring to read biblical stories of people being faithful and then kind of romanticize what it might have been like for them. In fact, people that maybe giants in the faith or people that have gone through really difficult things and their faith has inspired you, you can hear their story and think, man, that's so amazing. That's so awesome. But we can forget how hard it probably was for Noah, for some of these people in our lives to actually live through the stories that they tell, right? Uh, again, we are not told how long it took Noah to build the ark, but clearly it would have taken a long time, years, if not multiple decades to actually do this. It would have been expensive. It would have been costly. People probably thought they were crazy. It would have been frustrating. It would have been difficult. There is no doubt. There were probably many times that Noah thought, what am I doing? And is this all a waste? Like, am, am I wasting my life spending time doing this thing that seems absolutely crazy? For us, it can be inspiring that he was faithful, but the reality is it probably was difficult. And so one of the things we need to remember that this text shows us is that faithfulness isn't easy. Faithfulness is not easy. It is long. It is difficult. It is not flashy. There are many times where you might want to give up. In fact, Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor and he was an author, uh, he, decide, he, he described discipleship or following Jesus this way, that following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction, a long time 
over time. It can be frustrating. It can be difficult. It can be confusing. And so I just maybe want to encourage you this morning. Maybe you're trying to be faithful. Maybe you think God has led you or called you to do a certain thing, and it's been really hard, and there have been many obstacles, and you have wanted to give up. I just want to let you know, like, keep going. Like, just because it's hard and difficult does not mean that it is unfaithful, that you are doing something wrong. Oftentimes, faithfulness can be really difficult, worth it, but difficult. And there is no doubt that this was really difficult for Noah and his family. But it was by his faith, by his trust in God that he continued. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it'll be on the screen, uh, the author of Hebrews writes this, by faith... Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. That Noah had to trust in the Lord in spite of all of these things to see this happen. And so they get into the ark, the rains start coming, and then it says this in chapter 7, verse 11, if we keep reading. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were open, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, entered the ark, along with Noah's wife and his three sons, or his, wife, his son's three wives. Now, uh, this is more than just heavy rainfall. No doubt there is tons of rain. It is really heavy, but it's also saying that water is coming from above, which is rain, but also from below, that there would be massive, uh, heavy rainfall, likely a strong, maybe not necessarily a hurricane, but you can kind of think like hurricane gust winds happening. Uh, geysers and aquifers would have been springing forth out of the, uh, out of the ground, uh, likely earthquakes and probably tsunamis in certain areas. Big waves are crashing everywhere. This would result in total chaos. So it's not just a rainstorm. This is Everything is being destroyed. And what is happening here is this is bringing about the decreation state and a return to the inhabitable pre-creation state in Genesis chapter 1 before God created a land for humans to live freely on and flourish in. This is a pre-creation, decreation is happening again. Now, this, of course, is a hyperlink to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, what does it say? It says this, Now, the earth was formless and empty, Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Genesis 1 is happening again. That instead of life and flourishing, there was evil and violence and wickedness, which has brought about decreation. And so it is now uninhabitable for human mankind to live on and to flourish in. And so here is what happens next. So decreation is happening. It's just like Genesis 1, chaotic, water's everywhere, things are uncontrolled. It says the animals come to the ark. Again, we're, again, we're not told how they arrived. It says that God shuts everybody in. And then in verse 17 of chapter 7, if you want to keep reading, here's what it says. It says the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged higher, even higher on the earth, and all the mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished, those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Verse 22, everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. 
He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark, and the water surged on the earth 150 days. What we see happening here is that everything is destroyed. Wickedness that we've talked about the last couple of weeks is judged. The current evil is dealt with, that death ends it all. And as we joked about last week, now go enjoy playing Noah's Ark with your kids. Here's what we see happening here, that while God is patient and kind and merciful and desires to give grace, some of the themes we've seen leaning up to this story, here's what the story also tells us, that the end result of sin is judgment. The end result of sin is judgment. God has to judge because he cares. Here's the thing. There is nothing more infuriating to us than a loud injustice, that a continued injustice that nobody stops. Right? Especially if you have a kid, like if you're out in a playground, whatever, where you've got young kids, and somebody, another kid like wrongs your kid, and it's like, it happens, I get it. Like kids are gonna be kids, they're gonna say things, they're gonna do things, they're gonna be mean to each other, I get it. But when there's like no response or accountability, so like the other parents like see it happening and they say nothing, and you're just like, it makes you so angry, especially because you love your kid. And obviously, we're all biased that we think our kids are amazing. And so that's the thing, too. But it gets so frustrating when a child mis- mistreats your child. And it's like nothing is said, nothing is done. It's like it didn't even happen. It makes us really upset. And here, we talked about this last week. But God can only be loving if he cares about injustice and sin. That's the only way he can be loving. Like rape? Well, imagine, there's no, it doesn't matter. Uh, 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 swindle, people swindled out of their retirement, who cares? Uh, lying, cheating, stealing, abusing, whatever, right? It only matters if God cares. If God cares, he has to judge it. Otherwise, it does not matter. And here's the thing. If the big things matter, like rape and lying and cheating and stealing, that means these small things have to matter as well. It is God's consistency, which is, that, which is why we can call him loving, that he's consistent in all areas, the big things and the small things, they all matter. In fact, I would argue that one of the biggest reasons today that we have this unsettledness with God's judgment and sin is not because we think it's wrong. Like I think we'd be willing to grant if God exists and he's the creator and we're the creation and and we've fallen short of his standard, then of course it would make sense for him to judge me. And I think our problem is because what that means for us, that if God judges sin, then we know then God must judge us in our very autonomous, individualistic society and culture in which we live today, that no one can tell us what to do, that we are our own gods, that whatever we say goes at any point, the fact that anything or a God would judge us makes us really uncomfortable, and so we do not like it. But the end result of sin, even in his patience and grace and mercy, is judgment. God has to judge because he cares. Now, I want to say this before we keep going. I just want to do a little bit of brief lecture time here. Um, you can put your, I don't know, Bible caps on. I was going to, that's weird. I don't know why that was came to my mind. I want to answer a couple of questions really quickly about this story, and then it will all make sense in a couple minutes. So if you can stick with me, I'm going to explain a few things because I want to, I want to make a point here. There's a couple of questions that people have when they read this story, right? How long did it take the ark to be built? What did the people or Noah do like while the ark was being built? And of course, how big was the flood? These are the questions we have. And so a couple of things. Um, 
I want to say this. It is important to look at what the text actually says, which is why we're reading a lot of it this morning, and let that, let that confront our presuppositions and our assumptions that we make that aren't actually there. So every year, you know, at the Christmas season, one of my favorite things to do is to fix the Christmas story because we have a lot of assumptions and like our major scenes and like that, that's actually not what the text says. And so I want to do the same thing here. In fact, there are four common uh, misconceptions that Christians and even non-Christians alike often assume happens in the story that the text does not say. So uh, the first one is that there's this assumption that it took Noah and his sons 120 years to build the ark. There's another assumption that Noah preached to his neighbors to repent while building the ark, that he was telling them, hey, you, get, you should join me, you should repent. Uh, a third assumption is that Noah and his sons were ridiculed by others and that nobody had any inclination to accept his repeated invitations to repent, that nobody cared, that nobody believed him, that absolutely everyone thought he was crazy. Or the fourth one, that Noah and his sons built the ark, therefore all by themselves, that nobody helped him. So just really quickly, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, we talked about this last week, it does not say it took 120 years to build the ark. It's saying that God is reducing the time span of humanity from living long periods of time to 120 years. Uh, in fact, this, the, the text says nothing about Noah begging his neighbors to repent and join him. It never says that anywhere. In fact, he's explicitly instructed by God who could and could not enter the ark. Your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives. That's it. There is no other option for anybody else to join them. Now, perhaps it is likely to believe that others thought it was strange and weird, and, so, and many people probably thought he was crazy. I think that's easy to grant. Yet the ark was big, but it does not tell us who built it. And I think it seems very likely that while others thought he was some crazy guy, if they're getting paid or if, they're, if everyone wants to work, all right, everybody's got to eat, if he's willing to help make that possible for them, it seems very likely that people would help build this ark because they would get something from it. And so again, just remember, it's easy to assume things in the biblical text that are not actually there. So it doesn't say that. Now, when it comes to the flood, this is what everybody wants to know. How big was the flood? Again, the text doesn't explicitly say. Let me, let me explain what I mean. There, there's four ideas. Uh, one is global that it covered the entire globe and the highest mountains of the earth, even the Himalayan mountains and in the, in the, in the, in the, the China and Asia and, and Nepal and all these places. Like it covered everything, a global flood. That's one thought. A second thought is the known world. So the flood was universal relative to the known world of the audience of the Old Testament at that time. So still very massive, but did not necessarily include the entire world, right? Did not necessarily include the Himalayan mass, uh, mountains, for example. So it was the known world, massive, but not everywhere, uh, that it was regional. So it was a very, very big regional flood. So this would have been around the Tigris-Euphrates River, parts of the Mediterranean and around the Black Sea. So you can kind of think more Middle Eastern area today, or that it was local, that it wiped out several towns and rivers around where these people lived. Now, remember, and we've, we've talked about this, especially in Genesis 1 and 2, the Hebrew word Adam that we have translated here as uh, earth actually more literally is, be, is translated as land. So it can mean the entire earth, but most of the time in the Old Testament, it's talking, uh, uh, talking about a specific area. It's talking about the land. Now for us, uh, the Hebrew, uh, the ancients, they, they wouldn't even have necessarily have had a word for globe. It doesn't mean that the flood wasn't, flood wasn't global, but they wouldn't even have that word. And so for us, when we see earth, we, we, we think globe, but in the Hebrew, it's typically most often talking about land. And so uh, when it talks about the, the whole land, the whole earth, it's like, well, what, what part of the land is it actually talking about. 
And here's where the trouble comes when we read the Noah story or other stories. Right? The trouble arises when we try to prove scientifically and try to justify Scripture. So here's what the modern science says. And see, the Bible lines up, so the Bible must be true. Now, I think that we need to let Scripture stand on its own. And we need to make sense of it the best we, ha- we can with the knowledge we have. In other words, we don't need to be taking the modern scientific study or theory and keep trying to say that proves the Bible. And I say that, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, it's because our scientific and historical d- data is constantly changing which can change how we view scripture. So we've talked about even the creation accounts and how throughout history, when the modern kind of ideas of how, the, how old the earth is and when it came to be, they would often then kind of say, well, scripture matches that. And so, but then the problem was, well, when the modern understanding of creation changes, it was almost heretical to say that, well, that's not what scripture says because scripture was so aligned with the modern theories of the day. And so you, you want to be a little bit careful. Now, that said, I do want to share a couple of problems with a global flood. You can do this with all four options. I just want to share a couple of problems with the global flood for a specific reason. So hang with me. Uh, a quick analogy for a global flood or the problems is it, w- it, w- it would kind of be like Santa Claus on Christmas Eve, right? So you kind of know like if Santa Claus actually was, I mean, Santa Claus is real, but you know, just how hard it is, right? He's special. And so, you know, it's like 0.000001 second at each house. Like that's how it would have to happen. Now, now I want to say this. God is supernatural, can do absolutely anything. We talked about last week how Genesis 1 through 11, there is this kind of like overlapping of the spiritual and physical world that we don't see today in the rest of scripture. So we can do anything, but here's a couple of problems with the global flood. Uh, the atmosphere would be so incompatible with life because of the volume in the clouds would be so so dense that there would be therefore block the sunlight that everything would die. Even Adam and Eve and those on the ark probably would not be able, would not have been able to survive. If you had all the animals on earth at that time, if it is a global flood, uh, the rough estimates, they're all coming to the ark, but with eight people in the ark, they would each have to visit about 2,637 cages a day to feed and clean all the animals. That's working about a 12 hour shift with about two to three minutes per cage only. In fact, the seven days leading up to the flood, it would be the equivalent of walking a nine and a half story building every hour, day and night for the seven days the animals arrived. Uh, Based on when they got out of the ark and what it tells us in Genesis chapter eight, that if the ark ran aground on the still submerged mountain of Ararat, which we'll talk about in a little bit, assuming it was fully submerged because it was global, which means the ark would land somewhere on the top of it. uh, That means that the water only receded the first for 15 feet, the first 75 days, scripture tells us if it's actually global, that the water only receded 15 feet for the first 75 days, and then 17,000 feet the next 75 days, since chapter 8, verse 13 tells us it took about 150 days for the earth to dry. So that would be pretty difficult. Also, if they landed on top of a mountain, uh, uh, all the animals, like an elephant or a hippo, how would they get down? Not saying it's not possible, but especially since throughout history, there have been very many unsuccessful ventures to try to find where the ark was and these people are always like uh, dressed up in all this climbing gear to try to find the ark. And it's like, that would be hard. Uh, Also, last thing I'll say in, in chapter eight, verse 11, it says a dove flew into the valley to get an olive leaf which only grow in low elevations. And so the question is, how does the, how does the dove therefore fly all the way back to 17,000 feet where the ark would be since doves are not physically equipped to fly such altitudes? 
So there are some natural problems with a global flood. Now, how then, the question you might be thinking, how then do you couple that, and many examples I didn't share, with water rising high above the earth? It says that in verse 17, uh, or that it says that all the flesh died that moved on the earth. So how does you, I mean, it has to be global if that happens. Well, again, it's, it's helpful to point out that universal language does not always literally mean everything. So for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25, it says this, this very day, I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. This is before the Israelites are about to enter into uh, the promised land. Now it uses under heaven, just like in 719, when it says under all the, all the sky or all the heavens that the earth was covered. Yet in, a, in the context of Deuteronomy chapter two, it's talking about the nations in the land of Canaan and perhaps a few surrounding areas. It's not saying that the whole earth right now is terrified of the Israelites, but those that are, are, that are near them. Or in fact, in Genesis chapter 41, verse 57, it says, Joseph opens the storehouses of Egypt and all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the land. There was a massive famine in the Egyptian Middle Eastern area, and so a lot of people were coming to Egypt because they had prepared for the famine. They had stored a lot of grain. Now, I don't think the text in Genesis is saying that people in Hawaii got on their boats and just paddled all the way over to Egypt. I think it's saying that those in the area would come to Egypt because there was food there. In fact, again, even the Hebrew word that we have in English translated as covered, can't, like when it says that the water covered the mountains, uh, can literally mean covering something, like literally submerged or cover the mountains, or it can mean covering in the sense of overshadowed. So like, for example, let's say it's downpouring outside and you walk through the downpour and then you get to your office or you get back to your house and someone looks at you and says, you are drenched or you are covered. Right? You're not literally submerged in water, but you are wet. Like the water is all over you. Or if like, you know, the grass is growing, it's April, and many of us have weeds in our yard. And so someone might come over to your house and say, bro, your yard is covered in weeds, right? It's not necessarily that you have no grass. It's just that you have a lot of weeds all over the place. And so uh, you could be literally submerged, or you could just be wet. Your, your, grass, your, your lawn could be only weeds, or it could be, have a mixture of weeds and grass. And so this is what, when it talks about covering the mountains, it could also be saying that they just were all wet because it was raining. Now, here's the thing. Of course, there are arguments to be made for a global flood, and there are arguments to be made against some of these other options that I presented. Uh, I'm just trying to be honest with you. Personally, I am not confident on what type of how big it was. If I had to, if I had to choose, I would, I would lean towards a more regional or known world flood um, and not global. But in the end, that doesn't really matter. Here's what matters. And here's why I say all this if you're still with me. I know that was a lot. Um, <laughs> That there is a lot going on in scripture and that faithful Christians can disagree with some of this stuff. And that unstudied opponents in the, of the Bible often do not realize the wide possibilities of views that can be easily supported in some of these stories that on a quick, plain reading, particularly in English, with our common cultural, cultural assumptions, we can look at that and be like, Christians are dumb that they would actually believe that, right? It can be easy to assume that. Now, all that to say, I'm not saying that this proves that the Bible is true, but I, what I am saying is that taking a verse here or there and assuming people are dumb for believing it betrays a certain level of ignorance. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean that literally. Like, if you aren't understanding how the Bible was written, what it's actually saying, it's really easy to be like, I can't believe people believe that. That's so dumb. When, when you actually read it, it's super dense. And there's many times a wide possibility of understanding certain stories. So, all that to say, you can be deeply committed to Jesus, 
deeply committed to reason and logic. You can be committed to scientific and historical studies. You can, and at the same time, you can be committed to a very high view of Scripture. Yes, these, there are many unanswered questions no matter what view you take, but all these things can be held together. Or put another way, Scripture is not anti-fill-in-the-blank. It is not anti-science, it is not anti-history, it is not anti-reason, it is not anti-any of these things. That you can really love Jesus, really love uh, the scriptures, study them, and still take into account the best that we can, our understanding of things in our present day. And you can even do that with the flood story. And so that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. Scripture is not anti-anything. God created us, he gave us emotions, he gave us reason for a reason. reason. That rhymes. And, And so we should use these things, even as we come to scripture. And then it says this. Let's keep reading uh, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth. By the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the, mar- on the mountains of Arad. And so again, unlike English, remember, in Hebrew, when the Hebrew talks about the word remember, it's not just like recalling something that you forgot, like God was like, oh, I forgot about the ark, and I forgot there were people in there. Remembering means that you take action. Uh, so uh, for example, like when we take communion, we're not just like, oh, I forgot that Jesus like died and rose again, right? We're, we're physically remembering, we're taking an action upon something that we know. It's a physical demonstration and that's what's going on here. Now, uh, we're not going to get into it here for time's sake, but there's actually a ton of similarities between Genesis chapter one, verse three, and Genesis chapter six, verse, or chapter chapters one through three, and Genesis chapter six through nine. Now, we already saw one with the chaotic waters, and here's another one where it says that the wind and the spirit hovered over the earth, which it says the same thing in Genesis chapter one, verse two, when God, God's spirit hovered over the waters, and then he creates uh, a dry land for people to live on. And so uh, God's spirit here, spirit and wind, it's the same word in Hebrew, that God, well, basically that recreation is happening, that God, again, is creating a space for human beings to live. Now, the Ararat mountain range, is in modern-day eastern Turkey, southern Russia, and northern western Iran. The precise location, we don't actually know. Um, I would assume that Ark probably wouldn't even still be there today because of the elements and all that sort of thing. But that's where they are. And then it goes on to talk about the receding of the waters. It says Noah's family is disembarking. And then in total, they were in the Ark for about 370 days. And then it says this, the last thing we'll read this morning in verse 15 of chapter 8. Then God spoke to Noah. Come out of the ark, you and your wife, your son's wives, and your son's wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Again, this is re- recreation, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, be fruitful, multiply, recreation. So Noah, verse 18, and Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his son's wives came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families, right? There's like, at least right now, there's peace. No one's going after each other yet. And there's recreation that is happening here. And so one of the things I want to point out as we read this story of death and destruction and sadness, that even in God's judgment, that here's, it's also really important for us to remember, that sin doesn't prohibit God's grace, 
that God brings judgment and condemnation, rightly so, but just because you sin does not mean you can't receive the grace of God. Now, here's the thing. Sin should and sin can prohibit you from receiving the grace of God, but it does not have to. That God is grace-filled, that sin breaks our relationship with him, and so he has to do something with our sin and with our going our own way. But sin does not mean that there cannot be restoration, and it does not mean that you cannot receive grace. Now, grace is undeserved, yes, but it is given out of God's love, not from our effort, but because he loves us and he sees us valuable, that we are created in the image of God, that what you have done or what you have yet to do or what you have done in your past has no bearing, none at all, on your ability to receive salvation. It is all about what God has done through Jesus that redeems us. He saves us. He redeems us. And it's easy to miss this in the story, right? Uh, now, Noah is referred to as a righteous man in the story, and that should be commended, but he is not the hero of the story. In fact, one biblical commentator writes this way. It'll be on the screen. We can all learn from Noah's refusal to conform to this world. But in the end, there, we are not to, we're not supposed to be impressed with Noah, but with God. The text is, in fact, oddly silent about Noah on a number of serious counts. More to the point, Noah is silent. He never speaks. Through the whole flood account, he has no response to God's announcement, no questions about the ark of the animals, uh, no plea on behalf of anyone else, no cries for mercy, no bursts of joyful gratitude at the prospect of being saved, no grief for the world destroyed, no impatience in the ark, and no prayers of thanksgiving accompanying sacrifice. Now, it's not to say these things, he didn't think them or express them or feel any of these things, but they are not mentioned. In fact, the text could not be clearer that Noah is just a player and that God is the star of this account, that God is the one who condemns injustice, that God is the one who saves Noah, and that there is nothing Noah could have done by himself or for himself to save himself had God not intervened. And so here's what I think this text is trying to show us. And that is that salvation requires grace. It requires it, that God must, sin, uh, must judge sin, but it does not prohibit your gra- his grace. And in fact, you need his grace to actually be saved. Now, God is merciful and he is gracious, now, but there's a difference in those meanings. So mercy has to do with kindness and compassion, right? You forgive someone, you, you stop, you, you relent. That's mercy. Maybe if you grew up playing sports and you're down by too much, there's a mercy rule. It's like in the pain, right? You guys think they're a lot better. Let's just end it now, right? But grace goes further than simply mercy. That, that not only does it forgive you, but then it then gives you something that you do not deserve, right? And so if you're ever like, man, if you're sitting here and like, God is the one who restores, he's the one who redeems, but I have done so much. I don't deserve it. I have, there's so many things I need to fix. There's so many things I need to do better. I would just say, that's how you know you are ready to receive the redemption of God. When you are willing to say, but I can't do it. That's how you know that God's grace is for you. He's grace because you cannot, but God can. And so listen, this is why we worship. This is why we gather. This is why we celebrate six years. It's not just to come together. It's not just for the community. All those things are great, but we gather because we have a God who redeems us and who has given us grace and has saved us from ourselves. We face trials with hope. We face difficulties with joy because of this. Not because we love to suffer, but because we know that this is not the end. Here's the reality, that the only people God God saves are his enemies. The only people God saves are those who have turned their backs against him, yet he loved them anyway. 
That's who he saves. That those who have blown it, those who have fallen short, those who have not measured up, that Jesus came into the world to live the perfect life you and I could not live, die the death that we desired as our substitute, as our atonement, so that you and I could receive the mercy of God. God has done it, and we accept it. That salvation requires grace because we can never measure up to God's perfect standard. And so this is why in a few minutes after service, we're going to head out to the parking lot and we're going to celebrate baptism. Baptism is people saying that I have not deserved it, but I have found the God who has loved me and who has redeemed me and has brought me in by his grace, not by my effort. That's why we do it, that those who have trusted in the ark of salvation are going public with what God has done for them, that God's salvation requires grace. And so we must accept it. And so as I close, again, this is why this week we're doing this prayer and fasting that we would remember God's grace in our life and that we might pray for those in our life who have not yet tasted and seen the goodness of God, who do not yet know that in spite of whatever they have done, whatever they have said, whatever has happened to them, that God loves them right where they are and not just some future version of them. That is the God that we serve. Salvation requires grace and Jesus loves to give it for you, for me. That is why he came. And that's how we celebrate. So let's pray.